From KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Religion for Life, religionforlife.com. I'm John Schuck. Returning to Religion for Life is Reverend Greta Vosper. Reverend Vosper is a minister at West Hill United Church in Toronto, Ontario. She's a minister in the United Church of Canada, a liberal Protestant denomination, in fact, perhaps the most liberal Christian denomination in North America. But Greta has pushed the envelope even for this progressive church body. Greta is one of many clergy who do not believe in a supernatural interventionist God, myself included. Greta, unlike many of her colleagues, is open about it for the purpose of moving the theological conversation forward. She calls herself an atheist, and she's a minister. Her congregation supports her. However, a process is underway to review her fitness for ministry. In clear language, it's a heresy trial. She's speaking out about it. Returning to tell her story via Skype from Ontario, welcome Greta to Religion for Life. Thank you, John. It's great to be here. Well, the last time you were on the program, we talked about uh, your two books, With or Without God, Why the Way We Live is More Important Than We Believe, and Amen, What Prayer Can Mean in a World Beyond Belief. And we talked about uh, your your ministry and your coming out uh, story as uh, a minister and an atheist. And so now you're in a bit of hot water. Okay. <laughs> Tell me what's, what's going on. Well, it's very interesting. Um that this situation has developed uh, because, as you know, I've been out as an atheist since 2013, but I've been really clear with my congregation and my denomination and through my two books, the first one of which was published in 2008, um, since for about 15 years, uh, it's been very clear that I do Mm -hmm. not believe in an interventionist, divine, supernatural being. Um, And I have, uh, I journeyed that with my congregation we beginning in 2001 when I preached a sermon where I completely deconstructed the concept of God, and then we sat down to decide whether or not that relationship would continue, and and they were very courageous and wanted it to continue. So we started the work of uh, bringing the service into alignment with uh, what we now call a bear a theologically barrier free community, so that whether someone believes in God or whether someone doesn't. They can be nurtured. They're inspired by the values that the congregation has identified as ones they seek to pursue in their lives. They're um, edified uh, by the community gathering, by what's shared there, and they're inspired to go out and live those values out in their lives. So that's that's the work that we started in 2001. In 2004, I and another group of people founded the Canadian Centre for Progressive Christianity. And that triggered an article in our national magazine. And the result of that article was a motion put on the floor of our presbytery uh, requiring or asking that the presbytery hold a hearing, have people gathered together in a committee to hear my beliefs. And that was defeated by the presbytery. They had just done a, a visit, an oversight visit to my congregation. They had determined that everything was you know, appropriate. They had no concerns about my theology. They knew my theology because it had been very public in both this article and in the articles in in some national newspapers. So they were all tickety-boo. So that was 10 years ago. Hmm. Since that time, and even before that time, but since that time, there have been no conversations with anyone officially in the United Church of Canada. No presbytery group has sought to have a conversation with me. No official has come to sit through one of our services or visit with our board. No one has opened up any dialogue 
even though clearly I'm out there and we are willing to engage in dialogue. So I think that what happened was uh, we began a satellite community on the other side of Toronto. It's a big city. So we began the satellite community on the other side, uh, rented space from another United Church. We believed that that United Church was supportive of what we were doing. Uh, and, and some of their members had come to the meetings. We meet twice or once every every month on the third Sunday. And so uh, one of the journalists from our national magazine, The Observer, joined us for one of those gatherings and then reported on it in the magazine. And that congregation then canceled our lease because members in the congregation who had not known that we were there and who were disturbed because the the article had said that they were supportive of what we were doing, uh, they were infuriated. So they canceled our lease, which is the first sort of thing that was a problem. Also, after the Charlie Hebdo attacks in France, our denomination posted a prayer on the front page, which had the same kind of language, which is always used about God is, you know, leading us to this, or uh, may God care for these people, or some intimations like that. And I reacted to it, uh, as I often do when we use that kind of language to assume that we know what God wants and what God would say, God being some supernatural divine being or something with agency. I mean, even mm -hmm. a naturalistic understanding of God, if that has agency, then we can also assume that it has uh, some moral uh, responsibility, uh, moral authority, right? Mm -hmm. So I wrote a letter to our moderator and sent it to him and I made it an open letter. So I also posted it on my website and on Facebook, uh, asking him to lead the congregation, the denomination, I'm sorry, asking him to lead the denomination in a conversation about that. Because if we posit a moral authority in a divine being, then we have to just sit back and acknowledge that, yes, someone else has the right to posit moral authority in a divine being that may act in ways that horrify us. And as long as we keep talking this way, we're giving them tools to act. So that sparked some controversy, like considerable controversy. So those were two things. Then someone came and did an article on us in one of our national magazines or national newspapers. And I think people were getting upset, uh, particularly a talk radio host in London, Ontario, who I phoned because someone had called and said he's going to be trashing the United Church of Canada. So I phoned in and talked with him for the first uh, 15 minutes of his show or something. And he was uh, rude and finally called me an abomination and hung up on me. <laughs> but it sparked a long conversation, uh, which happens on talk radio. And one of the people who called in was the executive secretary of a neighboring jurisdiction and where, where that guy's radio show was. And she said several times on the air that she apologized that she couldn't do anything about me because I wasn't in her jurisdiction. So I think that that was the gauntlet that was thrown down and my conference executive secretary, her uh, equivalent in my jurisdiction, when he came to advise me that uh, they were seeking a process to review me, uh, he mentioned that 
radio show. And so I think that that was probably the most significant piece. A letter also came from another congregation in Toronto asking for clarification on the breadth of United Church theology, but not, it didn't mention me by name and it certainly didn't ask for a review. And I don't believe that they wanted a review. We've been in conversation with them because we've asked them to come and have a conversation with us. And I'm hoping that they do that. But that's how this should have been dealt with. So our conference executive met and they had that one letter from one congregation. And they had a conversation about what to do about Greta, who identifies as an atheist. And they realized and acknowledged that our disciplinary processes in the United Church of Canada are tied exclusively to two things, your effectiveness in ministry or your unwillingness to submit to the authority of presbytery. So when David Allen, the executive secretary, came to see me, he made it very clear that they could not review me on either of those charges because I had a very effective ministry and I have always done exactly what presbytery has asked me to do. And there have never been any disciplinary proceedings against me. So faced with the fact that they couldn't review me, but wanting to review me, they asked the general secretary of the general council, which is the highest executive position in the church, to make up a process to review me. The general secretary had decided rather than creating a new process, she would just stretch the interpretation of effectiveness to include suitability, which seems presumed, but she then attached suitability to an ongoing affirmation of ordination vows. And, you know, John, that seems like such a no-brainer for people. Of course, you should always be, you know, in continuing affirmation of your ordination vows. But in the United Church of Canada, we're not even allowed to respond to those ordination vows until a committee has decided that we are in essential agreement with the doctrines of the United Church of Canada. And essential agreement uh, can stretch very broadly and include very broad understandings of theology. Uh, Indeed, when I was ordained in 1993, the committee had to be convinced that I was in essential agreement with the Articles of Faith of the Basis of Union, and one of them includes casting the finally impenitent into eternal damnation. Now, I no more believe that than, you know, Mm -hmm. anything. I mean, Mm -hmm. I, I did not believe that at the time, and I'm sure they didn't even ask me a question about that. But whatever I said, they felt, yes, you are in essential agreement, so you can answer those questions affirmatively, right? So even if I had said, something about photosynthesis and, you know, the blooming of roses and all of that spoke, that was God to me. And that committee, whatever it was, I mean, I I could have said anything. If the committee said, oh, that, yeah, that sounds good to me. That sounds good to us. You're good to go. Then I would be able to answer those questions affirmatively. What the general secretary has done, and I apologize that this is so complex, but what the general secretary has done and what the conference asked her to do was to remove that committee conversation, the essential agreement piece, and focus exclusively on the questions, which without essential agreement then become literal questions. And the questions are, do you believe in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? That's the first one. And they go on from there. But Even in 1993, when I was ordained, that had to be parsed 
before I could answer it affirmatively. But I, at this point in time, answering that question affirmatively because of the work that I do around challenging language and the misconceptions that language puts out there, um, I would I would have a very hard time figuring out how I could answer those questions in a way that I thought was at all helpful to the church, to my colleagues, or to the community I serve. What to do about Greta the Atheist. Uh, and uh, if you're just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Greta Vosper. Uh, she is a minister at the, in the United Church of Canada in a congregation, West Hill United, uh, near near Toronto. And uh, up for investigation, they created a process for you. Uh, it sounds like they just wanted to trap you for the word and for actually coming out and saying what you think. Um, so... Okay, just the bottom line with the process, what could happen to you and to your church? The review process can end in one of two ways. It can end, I'm supposed to be interviewed by four people who then report back to a committee of 40, who then report back to the conference executive. And and just to point out how how interesting this is, before I get into that, that when the ruling came back from the general secretary, the conference's sub-executive met to determine whether or not to use that ruling to review me. There were six people at that meeting and two of them couldn't vote. So this is not a broad-based decision. And mm-hmm. in fact, about three weeks after that decision was made, the entire court of Toronto conference met and they, with a very high majority, voted to send a proposal to general counsel, which was meeting in Cornerbrook a, few, a couple of months after that and has just finished meeting to send a proposal to ask the general counsel to review the ordination questions because they said they were not, they didn't reflect our contemporary understandings of theology. So the court said, wait a minute, we've got to change, we've got to change these questions. If you're going to start asking ministers whether they're in continuing affirmation, you've got to change the questions. But four people on the sub-executive were able to start this entire issue in the United Church of Canada. And rather than coming and having a conversation with us, they put it in the disciplinary procedures of the church. So that's very problematic. But the review goes back. When the review is decided, uh, they can send it back saying, uh, we have no problem with Greta and nothing. uh, They don't recommend anything. Or they could say, uh, we don't find Greta suitable for ministry. And if that went back to the conference, either of them going back to the conference uh, executive or sub-executive, as it may be, uh, could decide then to institute a formal hearing. And a formal hearing has uh, more procedures in it that reflect secular court processes. And the result of that could be my being put on, in a, for a disciplinary reason, put onto the discontinued service list, which is the the equivalent of defrocking me. They could give me some uh, things that I need to do to show that I'm willing to relearn my theology or whatever. They could give me some things to do. And after six months, if I had done them to their um, satisfaction, then they would probably say fine. But in this kind of a situation, I, I think that would be that would be a big challenge to try to find something that they think that I could do and do well enough for them to be able to agree to have me remain in the United Church. 
Well, this is really unusual. They've obviously created a process just for you. Uh, heresy trials seem to be somewhat foreign to the United Church of Canada. And let's just talk about it a, a second. You're saying what many of your colleagues already say. They don't either believe in an interventionist supernatural God, right? I mean, you're not—I'm there. I mean, so, so many people are already yeah. there. It's the fact Absolutely. that you use the word atheist, it seems. Is, is, and, and let's talk about that for a second. W- why is it that you might use that word for yourself, atheist? Uh, one of my uh, colleagues asked me to ask you that. Is that word somewhat pejorative? Why pick it? And when there are other kind of nebulous ways to talk about God. Right. I think that word nebulous is exactly one of the reasons why I use the word atheist. Mm -hmm. Um, In 2013, I met uh, Kyle uh, Jones online. Oh, yeah. He had just launched Interview an Atheist at Church Day. And so we uh, engaged in conversation about that. And West Hill decided we wanted to interview an atheist. So we arranged that to happen on his launch day, which was the first Sunday in May that year. And coming up to that day, There were a lot of things happening that were indicating that people who identified as having no beliefs or no religious beliefs uh, and who perhaps identified as atheists were at risk, Uh, particularly in Bangladesh. Four bloggers had been arrested at that point and were being threatened with execution. And in Turkey, the internationally renowned pianist Fazil Say had been imprisoned for 10 months for identifying as an atheist. So I felt that it was important for me to take that step of solidarity with those around the world who wanted to identify as having no beliefs and call myself an atheist and put myself out there and risk that. Now, Mm -hmm. the interesting thing is this is Canada. It's not a big risk, right? In Canada, it's not a big thing, you know, like, so I say I'm an atheist. And I kind of thought that And this was perhaps supremely naive, but I thought that some of my colleagues might also say, you know what, I don't believe in a supernatural theistic interventionist God either. And I, too, will begin to use that word to be very, very clear. But the exact opposite happened. And I often have people uh, saying to me, and you probably have people saying this to you, too, you know, tell me about the God you don't believe in, because I probably don't believe in that God either which drives me a little bit crazy because it's very condescending. And because Mm. if they don't believe in that God, then why don't you call yourself an atheist too then? Like, why are you telling me I shouldn't call myself an atheist when you don't believe in a theistic supernatural being either? Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the, it is true that uh, many of my colleagues, uh, I often am pulled into an empty room and, the door is shut and someone says, I just want to tell you, I just really appreciate what it is you're doing. This is great yep. work, but they won't do it publicly, uh, which is unfortunate. And this ruling from the general secretary is going to make that even worse because it doesn't apply just to me. It now, from the moment she signed it, it applied to every one of my colleagues across the United Church of Canada, every one of them. So anyone who could not literally say, I believe in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit would be at risk. Uh, now in the United Church. So that's a problem. The term atheist uh, has, as you know, has so much pejorative stuff attached to it. And there are strong atheists and weak atheists, and I identify as a weak atheist. Um, You know, I just don't see any evidence for God uh, if that evidence was going to be right in front of me. And I'm not talking about the healing of my ovarian cancer 
or things like that that some have attributed to God. I'm just I'm just saying, you know, if if suddenly all cancer was erased from the world and I got a little note in my mailbox saying that was me, God, then okay, great. Something <laughs> like that, I would believe in God. But um, personal experience is subject to interpretation. And some people will use a supernatural theistic being to interpret their experiences and other people don't. And I think it's perfectly fine for people not to use that Yes. Uh, Gre- Greta Vosper is my guest on Religion for Life, if you were just joining us, from the United uh, Church in Canada, and a bit of hot water with her denomination because she's outspoken about what basically uh, Western culture has come to, that is the questioning of a supernatural being that we have called God. And that's really the question. You, you've just spilled the beans and done it publicly and are embarrassing church in some way or another, and I think that's a great thing to do. But what do you think about Christianity? Can it get along uh, without God? I think that Christianity has the opportunity, particularly in liberal mainline denominations, Mm -hmm. to morph from a focus on beliefs to a focus on values. And indeed, I think that work has been happening for over a century. Right. As our understanding of our scriptures, as our understanding of theology, as our our awareness of early church history has shifted over the course of the last 150 years, we have created this two-tier track of theological uh, conversation, the, the conversation that takes place in theological colleges and mainline denominations which is very focused on critical contemporary scholarship, which encourages clergy as they're being formed, teaches them the tools of critical inquiry, invites them to use those in application to the scriptures in all of that stuff, right? So, so mm-hmm. that conversation goes on there. But from the pulpit, you have to just, you're only supposed to use very traditional language that sounds like you still believe in very traditional beliefs. So those two things have been around for a century which is problematic. But even though clergy have been primarily using traditional language to describe very different understandings of God and uh, church and ecclesiology and, and Christology, even though they've been using that traditional language, those mainline denominations have developed a focus on values-based living, a justice-based focus, Uh, being present in the world focus, which is not dominated by some of the classical concepts within Christianity. It's not dominated by evangelism. It's not dominated by salvation. It's not dominated by uh, taking the story to the masses and converting them. It's about being present in the world in ways that creates just relationships. Uh, And I am part of a denomination that has done that in the most beautiful, solid ways each and every time it has entered into an area of difficulty. As soon, you know, it it has bad history too. We've just come through the truth and reconciliation process related to residential schools that Aboriginal children were placed in against their parents' will for decades. and, And we lament that. But when we find ourselves in a place where we're we're standing in the world and we recognize that an injustice is happening and that we are complicit in that, 
we then create a place for conversation to take place. That's our modus operandi. We create dialogue. And then we learn from that dialogue and we adjust the way we act in the world, first in terms of those that we that we accept um, within our communities. And then we push because it, we recognize that they have the right to be leaders in our communities as well. And so, so we have ordained women, we have allowed divorced clergy to remain in the pulpit, we have, uh, we moved to allow the ordination of gays and lesbians over 20 years ago, 25 years ago. We have been all, we have transgender clergy in our denomination. We have always created a table at which the other was welcome and invited to transform us. And so that's why this is, this is so confusing and so problematic and so upsetting for my congregation. Um, even once we got into this process, my legal counsel approached the United Church and said, let's have a conversation about this. This mm -hmm. does not need to be a disciplinary process. This does not need to be, you know, a battlefield. Greta wants this to be a collegial process. And I, and I said that over and again, that I didn't feel that I needed to create an us and them, that I didn't want that, and that I wouldn't try to do anything that would create a bigger separation yeah, yeah. But, but they, they, ref they refuse that conversation and so that's why now i'm willing to talk about it and my experience of it is because they have said we're not going to discuss this yeah, yeah. it's easier to uh, make you the the enemy and the heretic and then get rid of you in some way or another or silence you in some way and then uh then they can pretend that the problem is all over hey yeah we're all okay we can still do godfather son and holy spirit they're off playing croquet in the heavens um, so you have brought the conversation out there. You're facing some struggles for it. I am in appreciation for you very much and in your corner. Um, the, um, and, and, and part of the reason for a number of them, but the very fact that when uh, churches, I mean, the most liberal church in North America, the United Church of Canada, going back to the 15th century and, and doing heresy charges, that's, that's crazy stuff. So... Um, with this, there are people supportive of you. For example, there's a website called Friends of Greta uh, Vosper, which um, uh, is, is supportive of your work. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I was very appreciative of some efforts of people in my congregation who have come together to find ways that people can engage uh, because there's a lot of uh, room for engagement and because we really do want the United Church to know that people are paying attention and are involved in this conversation. So they have put together a Facebook page uh, and an association called Friends of Greta Vosper Association. And part of that uh, is to direct you to letters that you can write, is to invite you to start. The, if, if the United Church isn't going to have the conversation, they believe the we are we want the conversation, so they're asking people to start that conversation on social media. And they're also inviting people to make contributions towards uh, my legal expenses, which are going to be astronomical now that the United Church has refused to sit down and, and resolve this in an alternate way. So the, they've invited people to support with that and also put the Ministry of West Hill out there and said, you know, if you want to have this work continue and be as vibrant as it can be, you can, and we invite you to support West Hill United. So it, they picked that up and I'm very appreciative of it because it, it was overwhelming to me to try to do that 
piece of work. So they've, I'm gratefully acknowledging their help and uh, the support of so many people who will engage through their efforts and be supportive to West Hill. This isn't just about me. This is about the people who gather at West Hill as well. And there's a lot of stuff about how two thirds of the congregation left. And they did back in 2008 and 2009. But since then, uh, we have grown and we're a fairly stable community. Eight congregations in our area have closed in the last uh, 18 years since I've been at West Hill. West Hill has not, uh, despite its you know, huge losses uh, back in 2008 after my book was first published. So I'm pretty proud of the work that we've mm -hmm. done and that we have stayed strong. We are not limited uh, because of the beliefs that we have. Greta Vosper is my guest on Religion for Life. Greta, thank you for being with me. Thank you for your work on, on behalf of many people in support of you. And John, thank you for sharing this. You've been listening to Religion for Life. Find podcasts at religionforlife.com. That's religionforlife.com. Religion for Life is produced by KBOO Portland. Be well. <laughs>